Hi, I'm Donna Schillinger from Rogers, Arkansas. I have about a 30-minute drive to town, which is just enough time to catch an episode of Compelled on the round trip. I love turning what might otherwise be wasted time into productive time, inspirational time, educational time, and even worship time. Compelled stories stay with me through the day and even days to come and challenge me to grow in faith. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Season 4 of Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming Christians around the world. If you haven't noticed, this is a brand new season, and whether you've been listening for years or this is your first time tuning in, we're thrilled to have you. Today, our guest is Katherine Zoller, a children's author who writes beautifully illustrated renditions of Bible stories that are set to rhyme. But before Catherine became an author or a Christian, she was a child delinquent, completely out of control and constantly in trouble with her family and the law. But when she escaped state custody and started hitchhiking across the nation, she was picked up by a country pastor who would share a message with her that would transform her life. So lean in and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. I met Catherine earlier this summer while I was walking through the vendor hall at a conference in Dallas. She was at a booth selling Bible storybooks for children that she'd written. The books had beautiful illustrations and cover art, so of course I had to stop and chat. As we spoke, our conversation naturally shifted over to her testimony, and as she shared what God had done in her life, it just blew me away. So a month later, we sat down again, but this time with a mic. Catherine's story begins in Oklahoma City, where she grew up during the 70s, surrounded by church culture, but never fully grasping what it all meant. Yeah, we went to church. We went to this, uh, in fact, it was the church my grandfather started. And so we went every single Sunday. My dad didn't go, but my mother would take my brothers and and me, and we went to vacation Bible school every, um, so I always believed in God, but I never heard the gospel. I heard all the Bible stories, but I never heard that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins and rose again and went to heaven to reconcile me with God if I repent. Never heard that. As Catherine grew up in a household that was moral, but not exactly Christian, she realized that she didn't quite fit in anywhere, at school or at home. I was wildly curious, and so I would, I would, and I tested the limits. You know, I was the kid that if you drew a line in the sand and don't, said, don't cross that line, invariably I'd go up there and put my toe over it. You know, just always testing the limits. And my mother was pretty low energy, and both of my parents, if you know anything about temperaments, they were both melancholies, very unusual, and they were both firstborn. My dad and only, my mother and oldest, so a really unusual combination for them to get together. And so the standard in our house, to me as a child just seemed impossibly high. I, I couldn't be perfect at, at everything. I couldn't be perfect at anything. My brother was really smart. He was making the straight A's and could fit into the family system. Hmm. My younger brother then had some learning disabilities, so he had other issues going on. So I don't think he was expected to keep quite the same standard. And I just, I, I thought I was stupid. I thought I was dumb because the, the smart kids made straight A's and I was not anywhere close to making straight A's. I mean, I fidgeted nonstop. It was impossible for me to sit still for very long periods of time, which is why school was such a nightmare. I, I just couldn't do it. I mean, I wouldn't even try after a while because I, it just felt impossible to me. Mm. I had, I'm real social, as you can see. So I had tons of friends. We lived in a neighborhood that, that interestingly enough, there were lots of Catholic families and they all had you know large families. And so there was always somebody to play with there was always you know kickball or baseball or softball or you know just all kinds of neighborhood activities and this was back when you know the kids left the house in the daytime and didn't come back until the street lights went on you know or my mom rang the dinner bell and we knew it was time to go home so in that regard I had a pretty normal childhood you know you could ride my bike for miles and miles and be gone all day and nobody worried yeah it was more the the home structure where um, you know I just felt disapproved of and criticized and you know that I, I knew I was irritating my mother and I, I wasn't trying to but I didn't know how not to that's hard yeah it's it was, gotta be really hard as a kid then you know my mother would make me go stand in the corner with my nose in the corner until my dad got home and then it was my dad's job to discipline me and he didn't know I mean his whole the only way he knew to discipline was to spank and I mean he was spanking me all the way up until 15 mm. because wow. you know he just didn't have any 
he didn't have his own tools for how to discipline and cope. So, you know, he was doing the best that he could, but it was all wrong. Nothing was working. And then he finally told my mom, I'm not going to come home every day and be, be the bad guy. You need to figure out, you know, how you're going to handle her. So I'm sure that created a lot of tension between them. And I just, you know, it was just kind of a broken mess. Now, despite their family's dysfunction, there were still many seeds that God planted in Catherine's life, some that she wouldn't even realize were there until many years later. I do know that I had my maternal grandmother adored me. Both my grandmothers adored me, but she she just really had a heart for me. And when I think about the agape love of God, I, I think of her hmm. and that she just she just loved me unconditionally. It didn't matter to her that I was, you know, buzz bombing all over the place. And she was a school teacher. So every summer she'd have me come to her house every day and she would go through workbooks with me and try to get me caught up in math and spelling and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And she would always have, have, let me pick out a toy at the beginning of the, the summer and she would set it on the chair across from me. So, and that was my motivation to get through all these workbooks. And I remember one year I wanted the Chatty Cathy doll yeah. and I didn't manage to get through all my notebooks. I, I don't remember, I, it's funny that I remember this one. Well, I'll tell you why I remember it, because she gave it to me anyway. Mm. I just thought, you know, I wanted this thing so badly. I'd been wanting it forever and there it was sitting across from me and it, I couldn't lay my hands on it because I hadn't finished all these workbooks. And I mean, I was just distraught. And of course, you know, in her kindness, she was gonna give it to me anyway. And she did. And I just think that's, that's the love of God. You know, he, he doesn't withhold good things and blessings from his children. So she's that one example yeah. of somebody who really exhibited the, the love of the Lord. But while Catherine was grateful for the kindness of her grandmother each summer, it still didn't diminish the difficulty she felt throughout the rest of the year. Life was hard. I mean, not that we didn't have times of enjoyment, but it was just... It was hard because my parents didn't understand me and they didn't know how to deal with me. My, they were not Christians, so they didn't know to seek the Lord. Or, And again, my dad being in the medical field when I was nine years old, they told me that I was going to go someplace special. They built it all up. Or, you know, were my brothers going to go? No, neither one of them. So I'm just, I can hardly sleep. I'm just so full of anticipation. It's like, what are they, what are they going to do with just me? I mean, I was all excited. And so then to find out I'm going to a psychiatrist, it was just crushing. Even at nine, I knew that psychiatrists were for crazy people. And so I immediately began to believe two lies. Um, the first lie was that there must be something wrong with me. And the second lie was, because there's something wrong with me, it's not okay to be me. Hmm. And those lies stayed with me for longer than I would like to um, care to admit. Now, as Catherine mentioned, the psychiatry visit was intended to help Catherine's parents understand how they could work with their daughter. But really, it ended up planting a dark seed of doubt in Catherine's mind that would fester for years to come. She was plagued with feelings of self-doubt, worthlessness, and helplessness. And just a couple of years later, these feelings were compounded with anger when some major changes shook Catherine's young world as an 11-year-old. My mother had a massive stroke. Two weeks later, my grandmother died, mm. and the one that was so dear to me. I was so angry with God. I just, it's like, how, how could you do this? But I remember laying there on my bed, you know, at, at 11 years old and, and shooting my arm out to my side and going, did you know I was going to do that, God? Did you know I was going to do that? Because this, this the idea that, you know, that, that he was going to take my precious grandmother and not my mother, who I had no relationship with. So, you know, mm. yeah, I just, I spent all my time being angry. And um, I just, this ball of anger, just this blind fury began to take root in me. And, and God was no exception. I was very angry with him. And so when I got to be a teenager, I started acting out. And I had a boyfriend and he discovered drugs and introduced them to me. We started with marijuana, but it was truly a gateway drug. And I just did anything and everything that came down the pike. And I realized much later that it was I was self-medicating. I liked the downers, not the speed, not the cocaine. I liked the stuff that calmed my brain down. Because I was high all the time, I was cutting school and so I was truant. I didn't like school anyway, and I certainly didn't like to sit there stoned. And there was a pool hall that, you know, down the way they didn't, I mean, it was for kids. They didn't serve alcohol. They served pop and snacks. And so I shot pool all day and smoked cigarettes and got high and then would pretend like I'd been in school and get back on the bus and go home and rinse and repeat. Did that every day in ninth grade, which is why, you know, my yeah. grades were so abysmal. 
When I graduated, I say graduated, when I left ninth grade, I had five Fs and a D. I have no idea how I got the D, Paul. Mm. <laughs> I was never in class. Did your parents know that you were doing drugs or that you were skipping my, school? My, yes, there was one time in particular where I was doing quaaludes and I'd probably overdone it. And my, you know, my dad's a dentist, he works with that stuff. And so he was trying to, he pretty much explained that to me. It's like, I know you're on something. And of course I just denied, deny, 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 you know, what never did come clean. Um, and I'm sure, you know, they went through my room and found my, you know, my marijuana stash and all that kind of stuff. And then my parents would try to discipline me and I would run away from home. And so this was just causing all kinds of chaos in, the, in our family. And so they eventually, when I was 15, I just turned 15, took me to court, severed their parental rights, made me a ward of the state, and had me put in a state-run institution for juvenile delinquents called, ironically enough, the Sunbeam Home. Wow. Um, I can assure you that Naria Sunbeam came near that place. It was a very dreary, state-run institution. Now, I don't want to rush over this point. The reason Catherine's parents severed their parental rights was because the Sunbeam Home was a state-run facility for juveniles, and they would only accept her if she was a ward of the state, in one sense, an orphanage. But in Catherine's situation, her parents were still alive, but they had given her up to the state of Oklahoma, a fact that would come back into play later in her story. It was all an attempt to help me. But again, I'm 15. I don't know anybody else whose parents divorced him and gave him away. I have no self-esteem, and I already feel like I'm stupid and that there's something wrong with me. And now even my own parents are, are giving up on me and more or less just going, here, you do something with her. Yeah. I'm sure to them they were at their, the end of their rope and doing everything they possibly could to try to help me. What happens, of course, is you don't rehabilitate yourself and your peers don't rehabilitate you. I just got to be a better juvenile delinquent. And so these kids like to steal cars, so we would skip school and steal cars. And eventually I, we stole one uh, that had government license plates. Hmm. There was four of us, and we dropped one of them off at the high school where her boyfriend was. The three of us went back to the Sunbeam home. She never showed back up, and so we knew the gig was up. Turns out the government doesn't like you taking their things, which is kind of ironic these days. Sure enough, the next day, the FBI, the FBI shows up at the Sunbeam home, asks for a written statement, handcuffs us, leg cuffs us. And how old were you? I was 15. Takes us back to um, the jail in the little town adjacent to Oklahoma City where we'd stolen these cars. And we were in the jail cell. I lit a little fire, and they weren't too happy about that, so they slapped an arson charge on me. And I sat there for about a week before my mother came and paid the bail, reluctantly, I might add. So then I went back to the Sunbeam home, and we had about, this is right before Christmas break, and the way the Sunbeam home was structured was if your parents wanted you on the weekends or holidays or things like that, they could come and get you. We always went snow skiing for Christmas, and so we were getting ready to go snow skiing in, in about three days. But I did what I do, did best back then, and I screwed it all up. I decided that I was going to go to Florida and pick fruit with the migrant workers because that's what white upper-middle-class girls do, right? <laughs> and just like that, Catherine walked to her school one morning with her fellow Sunbeam housemates, but took a detour before she reached the school doors and ended up at the highway with just the clothes on her back, some drugs, and a couple of dollars. But what Catherine thought was going to be a journey to Florida would actually turn into a divinely appointed encounter, which you'll hear right after the break. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. 
Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to Stories Uncompelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Welcome back to Compelled. We've been listening to Catherine Zoller share about her early childhood and teenage years. She was a child delinquent, completely out of control, and as a 15-year-old, had just run away from state custody and was now hitchhiking her way from Oklahoma to Florida. I got as far as Monroe, Louisiana, and I got picked up by this little country preacher who asked me if I was a Christian. And I said, yes, I'm an American, because truly that's all it meant to me. And he asked me again, and I said, well, my mom goes to church, and I used to, too, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so he asked me if I was hungry. I said I was. He took me to the Dairy Queen and bought me a Dairy Queen hamburger. And while I was sitting there in the bench seat of that brown maverick, I can still picture it perfectly, he opened up his Bible and started sharing the scriptures with me. Mm. You know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, There's none righteous, no, not one. John 3, 16, of course. And something in my spirit began to stir. I mean, I'm hearing the truth. And so he takes me back up to the highway, drops me off. I stuck my thumb out. I prayed my very first prayer where I wasn't just furious with God. And I said, God, if you're like that man says you are, I hope I get caught tonight. You know, people ask me all the time if I ever saw him again. No, I never saw him again. People have said maybe he was an angel. I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is he was the catalyst that God used to lead me to him. I was wandering around downtown Monroe, Louisiana. I have no idea what happened. There must not be much going on back then um, because I was surrounded by six police cars. I mean, it was crazy. To this day, I have no idea who they thought I was or what they thought I was doing. But they arrested me for drug possession and vagrancy and put me in a juvenile detention center there. And I was extremely belligerent. (laughs) I hope you find that hard to believe. And I wouldn't cooperate in any way, wouldn't tell them my name, nothing. And so they wouldn't let me out of my cell. Because they had no idea if you were from Louisiana or from Alaska. I wouldn't tell them. them. And of course, I didn't have any ID on me. I was 15, so I didn't have a license or anything like that. But you had drugs, though. 
yeah, I had drugs. So I could get drugs easily. <laughs> you know, those truck drivers had lots of really good drugs. At any rate, I was in solitary confinement. I was locked in my cell 23 hours a day. The only time I got out was when, in the mornings when I was supposed to mop the whole, you know, mop all the rooms in the hallway. The way it was structured, the bed was a con- was like built into the wall. It was just came out like this, like a concrete ledge, and it had a little thin mattress on it. There was a sink and a toilet bolted to the floor. That was that was the only thing in all of these rooms except mine. It had this little salmon-colored metal table with a Bible on it. So I think it, the reason I tell the, the part about me being in every single room is I know, I know for fact that there was one room with one table and one Bible, and I was in it 23 hours a day. When you read a book, you start at the beginning, and you know it's Genesis. It doesn't make much sense to me at all. I don't even know how far I read in it, and that was—I mean, that was—I mean, I was 15. That's been a long time ago. Yeah. I just know that I was kind of fig- trying to see, you know, figure out how to search through the Bible to find these scriptures or the verses that this guy had, you know, had me read, because that's what he would do. He'd like turn the Bible to me while I'm eating my hamburger and, and point to it and say, "Read that verse." You know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I'm looking to see if I can find these scriptures again, but I didn't know anything about the Bible. It was just gobbledygook, and I couldn't find these scriptures. Um, so I was just sort of randomly flipping around. But I'm telling you, Paul, the Bible is the living, breathing Word of God. It wouldn't have mattered if I'd been reading in Leviticus. You know, it's the, the Spirit can penetrate. Yeah. And I got down on that cold tile floor, and I cried out to God, asked him to take this mess of a life that I had made in just 15 short years and to to do something to turn it around and he showed up he showed up and I got radically unbelievably born again now think about that in just the course of a few days Catherine had run away from state custody hitchhiked across a good portion of America while being spared a terrible tragedy on the open road been picked up by a completely random stranger who shared the gospel with her for the first time, was arrested, and then placed in the only cell in the detention center with a Bible. And as she read the word over the course of three days, it broke her heart and left her transformed into a new creation. The Lord spoke to me for the very first time ever, and he said, tell them your name. So I told them my name. They got in touch with my parents. My dad arranged for me to fly back to Oklahoma City, and I got there the night before I was due in court. I arrived in court that morning. The judge, we had, I had six counts of grand theft auto. I had the arson charge, truancy charges, drug charges. I mean, I just had a laundry list of things, and he gave me an eight-year prison sentence pending a six-month probation. So that meant I had six months to be good, which I knew I couldn't do. Couldn't back talk a house parent, cut a class, get high, nothing for six months. And I, I just knew it was hopeless. And I'm, you know, I'm not even a baby Christian. I'm like an embryo Christian at this point. So I don't know to cry out to God or anything like that. Because I was 15, I would have gone to Tecumseh, to the Girls Reformatory for three years, and then gone, when I turned 18, sent to the Women's State Penitentiary in Oklahoma. And so I just, I mean, I just knew it was over. Um, but God, in his sovereignty, had other plans. I had an aunt and uncle from Wilmington, Delaware, who flew into Oklahoma City unannounced, showed up at my parents' house, and told them that they wanted to take me to live with them. And did your parents know they were coming? No. And how did they know about this? Because my, when they had gone skiing without me, because you know, they don't know where I am, I'm on my way to Florida, um, my mother had very uncharacteristically written this heart-wrenching letter to my Aunt Betty, just saying, you know, we don't know where Catherine is, you know, Things are a mess, blah, blah, blah. And so they came. Wow. And so my mother said, absolutely not. She's where she belongs, and she's getting what she deserves, and you can get right back on that plane and go home. But my grandfather was a lawyer, and so my aunt and uncle went to him, and he went to the juvenile judge and said, "I this is a good idea. She needs to go with him. So because they'd severed their parental rights, they had no legal say-so. Oh, wow. Totally the sovereignty of God. Oh, man. So, you know, just a good example of him taking something that looks horrible and using it for, you know, our good and his glory. So I fly to Wilmington, Delaware, and six months later, all the charges against me were dropped. And so 
my and, and I, of course I'm doing the same stuff. I'm still you know hanging out with the with the drug kids at at this new high school, and I'm still having a hard time going to classes. And so I'm starting to recreate the same thing. And my aunt was just getting to be where she was at her wits end. And the, you know there was one point where. Um, I remember I'd come home and I was, you know, had been, I'd, I was high and I put the earphones on. I was laying on the floor listening to the stereo, listening to the Beatles. And, and she, you know, whipped that thing off and she said, we need to talk. And it's like, this can't go on, you know. And I, and I was scared. I was terrified because I didn't know how to rehabilitate myself for one thing. But there was no place left to go. I mean, I didn't want to go back to the Sunbeam home. I couldn't go back to my home. I'm, I'm running out of options. So it, it got real quick. They had these very good friends, and they had a daughter who was, had similar issues like me, and she had she had become a Christian. She was born again. The daughter had. Yes, and so they wanted me to. Her name's Ellis. She's still one of my dearest friends. So they wanted me to go talk to Ellis, and you know I didn't want to, but eventually I ran out of excuses. So I go and I meet Ellis, and we talk, you know, and talk and talk and talk and talk, and sh- and then she invites me to her church, and so that's when I started going to church. If you had not met with Ellis, do you think you would have been? you know, just falling off the rails again in Delaware? Probably. I mean, it took, I mean, I want to say it took several months before I was able to, you know, like completely change my lifestyle. Yeah. And I think that's important for listeners too, because a lot of times when we get saved, God will deliver us instantly. And there's a lot of times where he doesn't. In fact, in my experience, most of the time he doesn't. It's a gradual deliverance. It's what, you know, sanctification and discipleship is all about, growing in your faith and allowing God to bring the the internal changes that 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 translate to external behaviors. Now to follow up on Catherine's point, Everything didn't turn into a Cinderella fairy tale story for her. While her aunt was kind enough to remove her from her environment in Oklahoma, there was still a very dark side to her stay in Delaware. The entire time I lived in their house, my uncle molested me. Whoa. Um, and it just that just added to this sense of shame and there must be something wrong with me lie that I had in my head. And I, I knew for a fact that my aunt did, had no idea because I figured if she did, she'd kick me to the curb. I mean, he's this highly successful DuPont executive. And so, you know. This is your aunt and uncle who came to rescue you. Right. But actually... It's horrible. Well, it wasn't pleasant, I can tell you that. Uh, So I lived there for three years. And the truth is, my aunt, I always say I had two salvations when, when I got saved and when my aunt rescued me. So despite what's going on with my uncle, she really was my saving grace. Did you ever share with your aunt what was going on? Well, what happened was when everything came out, it turns out that he had been unfaithful their entire marriage, multiple affairs, carrying on sometimes two and three at a time, if you can imagine. And so when all of that came Came to light she was getting ready to leave him divorce him and I was with my best friend I was getting ready for I was the maid of honor uh, matron of honor at her wedding and I was sitting up in the bathroom Betty was sitting there talking to me and she said I need to ask you something I said what she said was Ned ever inappropriate with you and of course I just started you know I'm trying to get ready for this wedding and put my makeup on and here I am crying it all off and I said yes and she said why didn't you tell me and I said I, I couldn't I you know you would have gotten rid of me of course she swore that she wouldn't have. But again, he's this very successful vice president for DuPont, um, extraordinarily successful. So in my mind, who's she going to keep? You know, the wealthy husband or the juvenile delinquent? <laughs> mm. Did your Aunt Betty, did she know the Lord at the time? Yes. Um, and as a result of me coming to live with them, the whole family ended up becoming born again. My uncle eventually, the oldest daughter, well, most of the, they have three children, and one of them was married and gone, and the other two were in college and sort of in and out, but mostly out. So hmm. um, eventually, like I said, the whole family became became a Christian simply because I was living there. Wow. Well, I, she used to have to take me to church because I couldn't drive. And so she you know, would come in and, and sit in church with me and so she was the first one to, really? to, yeah, to, again, just these beautiful parts to the story of how God redeems everything. He redeems our immortal souls. He redeems the things that are done to us. He redeems the things that we do to ourselves. And one day he's going to redeem the entire universe. While Catherine already had some sense of how God was redeeming her story so far, she had no idea about the next redemptive chapter that he had in mind. Coming up after the break. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. 
They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of the Apple Podcast's top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right. You can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it or it didn't work out for you or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compelled so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they wanna do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Hey, one last thing. If you enjoy listening to Compelled, then please consider supporting us financially through Patreon for as little as $3 a month. As our way of thanks, we'll give you access to all of our episodes one week early and ad-free. And we have all kinds of other cool perks like behind-the-scenes content, raw interviews, and even free merch. But most importantly, you'll be allowing us to continue creating these episodes celebrating what God is doing in people's lives. Find the details at compelledpodcast.com. Catherine eventually graduated from high school in Delaware and moved out of the house to attend a discipleship school hosted by Youth with a Mission, also known as YWAM. She participated in several short-term mission trips and felt that she was called to work as a missionary behind the Iron Curtain. But when she was rejected from missionary school a couple years later, she took it pretty hard. She became complacent in her faith and her zeal for the Lord began to take a back seat. My dad finally called and said, if you're ever going to go to college, now's the hour, you're running out of time. Well, I had absolutely zero business being in school, but, you know, I just didn't know what else to do. So I went back to Oklahoma so he could pay in-state tuition, enrolled in Oklahoma State University. I still had in my mind that I was going to go back to youth with a mission, so I thought I'd get a degree in international relations. Turns out that's just politics, so I dropped that pretty quick, and then I decided I'd study French, and then I realized that was a foreign language, so I dropped that pretty quick, and <laughs> I just kept you know, changing my major because I had no idea really what I wanted to do. And in retrospect, I know now that I was really clinically depressed at this time, mm. but of course I hadn't been diagnosed, hadn't even heard the term. So I had my spent my freshman year re-enrolled for my sophomore year. I was I decided I needed some extra spending money, and so I was going to be a desk clerk at the dorm where I lived. And so I had to go a week before classes to be trained, and I met this guy named David Jones, who was also doing the same thing, and he was telling me about his best friend, Jay, who just had rhinoplasty, and his you know eyes were all bloodshot and he bruised up, and he looked like he'd been hit by a train. So I'm not thinking anything about it. The next week when classes started, the dorm always had a, a big burger bash so you could kind of you know, see everybody you were going to be living with that year. And I'm looking for David, but he's the social chairman, so he's buzzing all around. And I didn't know anybody. And I see this poor pitiful guy sitting on the grass and eating a hamburger with his face all beat up. And I'm like, ah, that must be the friend. So, you know, I mean, I'll talk to anybody. So my dad used to joke that I was the only person he knew who could go into a public restroom and come out with a friend. Uh. So I w went and sat down and just started chatting with him. And the next day he came up to the desk to ask me out on a date. He was so nervous. 
he was so humble. I mean, he was like shaking. I thought if I tell this poor boy no, it's going to take him six months to work up enough nerve to ask another girl out. Yeah. So to this day, I tell him it was my pity date. <laughs> so we went out, we started dating, and then I got pregnant. And when I got pregnant, I felt like I'd blown the call of God on my life. Um, I wasn't going to be a missionary. I wasn't going to marry a missionary. I wasn't going to have little missionary babies. And I was devastated. So we were, you know, obviously we wouldn't have been sleeping together if we you know, were actually Serving following the Lord, the Lord yeah. as, as, as we should have been and as we wanted to, you know, as we intended to. We got married and lived in married student housing when our son Jordan was born. Their son Jordan entered the world on a wintry day in November 1982. He seemed happy and healthy at first, but then at a six-week checkup, they received some disturbing news. Jordan was diagnosed with a heart murmur. Uh, when he, after he was born, and the pediatrician kept saying, you know, it should go away. Well, it didn't. And so he said, when you all, you know, when Jay has a job in insurance, you need to take him to a cardiologist and have him checked out. So he got a job with Texas Instruments in Sherman, Texas. We immediately made an appointment with a cardiologist in Dallas and took Jordan in. And they said, you know, yes, we can hear it. Come back in a year. It should go away. And how old was Jordan? Jordan was uh, 18 months old at this time. So he came back in a year and he said, I can still hear this. The bad news is it's worse than we thought. The good news is we can take care of it all with open heart surgery. But just before Jordan underwent that surgery, the doctors discovered some terrible news. One of his heart valves hadn't closed correctly at birth, and there was a hole in his heart. This, in turn, had created terrible scarring in his three-year-old lungs. And the prognosis was that Jordan would die as a child or in his teens. This was the beginning of multiple invasive surgeries for Jordan. Several years went by, and Jordan was hospitalized several times and even suffered a heart attack. But finally, shortly after he turned 17, Jordan underwent a heart-lung transplant, which seemed to have a miraculous effect on him. I mean, he just, I was started to write a book about this whole experience called Living with Lazarus because that's what it was like. It was like watching somebody come back from the dead. It was amazing. He could play basketball. He could ride a bike. I mean, he, used to, he couldn't even go up and down the stairs in our house without oxygen on and been being winded when he got to the top of the stairs. So it's just this dramatic transformation. And we're sure that he's going to live a long life and be married and have kids. The lungs are the most delicate transplanted organ because they're the only internal organ that's affected by external stuff. We breathe. Mm -hmm. So we breathe outside stuff that gets into our lungs. And so they're delicate. And there's a condition called bronchiolitis obliterans. It's, it sounds ridiculous. They call it BO. And that's the death knell for lung transplant patients. Mm -hmm. But he ended up being diagnosed with BO about a year, maybe 18 months after the transplant. Mm -hmm. And we looked all over to find somebody that would do another transplant and nobody would touch him. Mm -hmm. He was too high risk. And so he lived another, he lived five years after the transplant. He died uh, October 10th of 2004, just right before his 22nd birthday. It's been 16 years, so I, I still think about him every single day. And I st every once in a while, you know, a Tom Petty song will come on and I'll have a few teary moments or something. But I know I'll see him again. And there's a, a hope that we have as believers that when we lose people we love, that we'll see them again. And I have no doubt that Jordan is going to be the one to usher me into the presence of the Lord when it's my turn. You know, we all spoke at his funeral. And one of the things I said, just spontaneously, I hadn't had anything prepared. I just got up there. And, you know, we're all shocked and in, shocked and in grief. And I just said, the first thing I'm going to do when I get to heaven is hug Jesus, dance with Jordan, and find Eve and slap her. Yeah. Well, everybody laughed, but I was like, I'm serious. <laughs> I'm going yeah. to find her. So I don't, we don't grieve as others grieve. Mm. You know, there's hope in our grief. And I, but I will also say, too, it was two years. You know, people will tell you the first year is the worst, and that's true. But for me, the first two years were the worst. Mm. It, it took a long time for that black cloud of, of real intense grief to finally lift, yeah. even though I had the hope that I would see him again, I still had to I still had to go through the grieving process. Yeah. I'm sure in many ways also for someone that, you know, when we lose a loved one very suddenly or rapidly, we're not prepared for that. Right. And so there's a different form of grief when that happens. Exactly. But then when you have someone that's had a chronic illness for so long, only to think like, wow, it's been solved, it's been resolved, the miracle, Jesus answered our prayers. Right. And that for that to then be taken away, that's a different form of grief, I'm sure too. That's that's 
Spot on. That's absolutely the truth. And and that was part of the problem is like, you know, it's kind of like, God, why would you why would you allow the transplant to take place and this transformation and his health to come back only to have him die? But, you know, we can ask that about a lot of things. All I know is we got five more years with him and they were, you know, five great years. I wouldn't trade for anything. And he had a strong faith. I know people would say, you know, Jordan, do you ever ask why me? And, and he would say, no, I never ask why me. It's why not me? Hmm. This is a fallen, broken world. Why would I think that something like this wouldn't, you know, wouldn't affect me? So he had a really mature understanding uh, about some spiritual matters, and he never blamed God. He was never angry. Um, he just, you know, he was a great kid. And it's been hard. You know, my children have suffered the loss of a brother, so they've had to have their grieving process, and you know, it f- affects the whole family. We talk about him all the time. And then there was the whole thing that I had to work through after Jordan was diagnosed with all this health issues. You know, I kind of felt like King David after Bathsheba's mm. baby, um, you know, that that baby died. It's like, is this God's judgment? Is God punishing me because, you know, we did this thing? And, I, and again, as I've, you know, as you grow and mature in your faith and learn more and, 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 and see more and trust more and God does more, you realize, of course not. God's, God's not punitive like that. He's redemptive and restorative. Yeah. Now, does he discipline us? Yes, but he didn't have Jordan die because I got pregnant out of wedlock. Now, I told you at the beginning of this episode that I first met Catherine at a conference where she was selling books she'd written for children. Well, the journey of how she became a children's author is actually tied into all the stories that we've heard so far. And now that we have the proper backstory, here's how it all comes together. And it starts with a flashback to 1988, where Jordan was only six years old. One night when we were still living in Sherman, there was this giant full moon hanging right outside the bay window in our in our apartment bedroom. And I, again, I couldn't sleep, pretty chronic condition for me. And so I just held my hands up in, that, in the moonlight and I said, God, what do you want to do with these hands? Hmm. And the Lord spoke five words to me. He said, I want you to write. Well, I jumped, me? So I jump out of bed, I run downstairs, I grab a pad and pen and I'm like, okay, what? You know, but nothing's coming, <laughs> nothing's coming. I'm making a grocery list. That's actually in the about the author thing. You know, along came the sun with the dew in the mist, but all I had written was half a grocery list. But I, I knew the Lord had spoken to me. And so it was kind of like Mary. I just treasured that in my heart. I didn't tell a soul. And I'm thinking maybe I'll write my testimony. I'm thinking maybe I'll write this Living with Lazarus book. The years roll by and things begin to happen. So anyway, we're back in Tulsa. My mother-in-law invites me to her Bible study and I go and I parked in the wrong spot and they made me move my car and I sat in the wrong seat and they made me move up and in. And if you don't have your lesson done, you can't talk. And I just thought, this is too much like kindergarten. I can't do this. Yeah. And so I, but I couldn't figure out how to tell my sweet mother-in-law that I didn't want to come to her stupid Bible study anymore. So I kept going, and I ended up staying eight years because really? it was really a fabulous, fabulous. St- we did. It was nine months of studying a particular book of the Bible, and I hadn't had that kind of really in-depth Bible study since I'd been in YWAM. Hmm. So it was. I, I, I ended up really kind of getting past all the the rules and regulations and deciding that this was something I wanted to do. And at the end of every year, they have what they call share day and anybody who wants to can get up and say what they got out of that year's study well we'd been studying the book of genesis and i was laying in bed the night before share day because i'm a speaker and i knew if there was a microphone i was going to be in front of it the question is what am i going to be saying yeah and these couplets started coming to mind this is the one true story of how everything began because of love our god began to formulate a plan i thought well that's kind of clever so i got up and wrote it down and went back to bed and another one came for six short days he labored as he shouted his commands up popped the stars the trees the seas the mountains and the lands and then the lord let loose with his vast imagination creating all the animals and all the vegetation i'm like that's really clever so i get up and i write it down and they keep coming to me so i finally i thought i just need to stay up until these stop coming to my mind and by the time the sun came up that morning, I'd put the entire book of Genesis to rhyme. I rush off to class. I read it. I'm thinking they're going to think this is a silly little poem for kindergartners or something. And this is a rather stoic group of white women not given to spontaneous bursts of applause. And they went nuts. Oh, they were applauding. It was crazy. So after class, all these women are rushing up to me with dollar bills and slips of paper with their addresses saying, make a copy and send that to me. Make a copy and send that to me. I had one woman say, Catherine, have you ever thought about making that into a children's book? I said, I hadn't thought of any of it till three o'clock this morning. But that got the wheels turning. 
I joined a Christian writers group that meets there in Tulsa. I learned what a query letter was and got out Sally Stewart's writer's guide. And I made 35 copies of this poem and wrote 35 very finely crafted query letters. I kissed them goodbye, prayed over them, and sent them off to these different publishing houses. And then I sat back because I figured there would be a bidding war. You know, I knew yeah. that, that Stephen King had gotten a $400,000 advance for Carrie. So I'm thinking, well, if that, I mean, this is much better. This is eternal. Of course. What, what am I going to get? Of course. And what I got was 34 very finely crafted rejection letters and a phone call from one man who said, I think there might be something to this. And so that got the journey of getting published started. I, I say it took me about three hours to write that thing and 13 years to get it published. Three of those years, I was looking for a, an artist. I looked all over the country, coast to coast. I ended up with a publisher in Mobile, Alabama, a little Christian publishing house. And so I got the first two books published, Genesis and Matthew. And then I get a call from the publisher and he said, I had a Spanish publisher that comes to my office every year looking for titles to translate. And the only ones she wants this year are yours. I said, why? And he said, because they're the only ones that translate culturally. I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense. So I'm having this conversation, but they rhyme. You know, I just couldn't figure out how you were, that we were going to do that in Spanish and Portuguese and have it. And I finally said, well, I'm just afraid they're going to lose some of their charm. And he's such a man. He goes, well, it's not really about the charm now, is it? It's about getting the word out. I was like, well, shut my mouth. Uh -huh. So I said, let's do it. I hung up the phone. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, these books are going to go around the world. And I ran into my living room. I'm jumping up and down. I was just going nuts and just worshiping the Lord. And Paul, the Lord spoke to me so clearly. And he said, Catherine, you are a missionary. You are a missionary. And he redeemed that call hmm. that I thought I had blown 27 years ago hmm. when I had gotten pregnant. And now I've got 10 titles in the series, and I'm working on the 11th right now. As we began to finish our conversation, I mentioned to Catherine that my wife and I had purchased her adaptation of the book of Esther and read it to our two-year-old and our four-year-old. Not only did they love it, but my wife and I also found it intellectually stimulating and beautifully illustrated. Simply put, it was a joy to read. And we could feel so much of Catherine's personal journey and passion brought to life through the pages of Esther's story. You know, if the parents aren't engaged, it's not going to keep the children engaged. And the thing about Esther that makes it such a great story, it's, it's a melodrama. You know, you've got your villain that you can hiss at and your, your hero that you can clap for and your heroine. And I tell people, too, that particular book is all about identity and destiny because Esther was at the bottom rung of society. She was an orphan, she was a Jew, and she was a girl. I mean, and, and yet what does God do? He takes her destiny that looked like it, she was going to be a nobody forever and die a nobody and elevates her to, you know, the she's like second in command in the kingdom. I mean, she's the queen. Yeah, It's a beautiful story. When people have adopted or foster children, I always encourage them to buy that book and read it to the kids and talk to them about their identity and their destiny. Our identity is who God made us to be, and our destiny is what has he created us to do, yeah. because we each have both. What would you say to the parents that are listening and they have a child who is off the rails? I would say pray. I would say seek wise counsel. I'd say take a hard look at yourself. I'd say get the help you need. Don't be afraid to get counseling. Don't be afraid to call, call your pastor. Don't be afraid to, to find outside sources to help you. There are resources out there. You just have to pray and ask God to bring them to you, show them to you. And you have to be willing to be humble and let people know I, 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 there is a situation here with my child and I absolutely don't know what to do about it. Catherine, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you, Paul. It was a real pleasure and a privilege. Catherine's story has so many twists and turns, and there are a lot of takeaways, more than we could possibly begin to cover. But one that really stood out to me is the way that God can use an individual moment of obedience to change someone's life. For example, the random country preacher outside Monroe, Louisiana, who picked up Catherine as she was hitchhiking alone on the side of the road. Not only did he take the time to give Catherine a hamburger and find out more about who she was, but he shared the message of Jesus with her that she had never heard before. And while he may have left that day thinking he hadn't made a difference, God used that as the genesis to transform Catherine's life in her detention cell just days later. 
I also think about Catherine's friend Alice in Delaware, who was not just a kind friend, but a faithful witness to Catherine and brought her to church. And of course, how Catherine's spiritual journey and transformation was a testimony to her aunt, uncle, and cousins, who all eventually came to know the Lord. My family has read two of Catherine's books at this point, Esther and Exodus, and they have been a huge hit, especially with the kids. And yes, with the parents too. I would encourage you to check out her website at therhymeandreasonseries.com. Again, that's therhymeandreasonseries.com. Or you can go to our website, compelledpodcast.com, where we'll include links to her website, books, and more. And at our website, you can also sign up for this week's podcast giveaway, an autographed copy of Catherine's book, Exodus. Again, you can find all of that at compelledpodcast.com. This is the first episode of season four, and we've got 10 more awesome stories to share with you over the next few weeks. If this is your first time joining us, then thank you for listening, and please share this story with a friend. This episode was edited by Zach Fowler and Will Jackson. Our media intern is Ethan Adams, and our associate producer is Sarah Hastings. Special thanks to Jayla and Jediah Ward for helping me record Catherine's interview. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's episode with Jim Payne, who in 2005 deployed to the Middle East as part of a Navy SEAL team, alongside 15 of his closest friends and brothers in arms. Partway during their deployment, his team suffered devastating losses in the mountains of Afghanistan. And as Jim grappled with crippling grief, he clung to the one who offered any glimmer of hope. And don't forget, if you like the sneak peek, you can actually listen to the entire episode right now, one week early, by supporting us on Patreon. Again, details are on our website. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. We were to follow these Russian AGE ships, but they launched their helicopters. Now we got a, a helicopter buzzing us that's capable of, of taking, shooting missiles at us and sinking us like that. Yeah. So, so that was kind of a, a crucial moment for me where I was like 21 years old, and I thought I was going to die there, really. I thought I was, that, was, that was one of those such scenarios because it was buzzing us hard. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.